This is Euroscopic, a podcast that happens when a journalist from America's north and one from America's south see the world from the place they met, the center of Europe. I'm William Glucroft. And this is Martin Gack. And today is Friday, September 15th, 2023. In this week's episode, we're looking at catastrophes from Greece to North Africa, the race to lead the European Investment Bank, Ursula von der Leyen's State of the Union address, plus a story or two that will take us into next week. Now, let's get into the week that was and why. I guess my question for you, my first question for you, Martin, is are you feeling safe? Yeah, I mean, I think I generally feel very safe, uh, although I must say that um, we're sitting down, just um, shooting the breeze here, my wife, my kids, and then my phone, my computer, her phone, her computer, and um, the iPhone of the next door neighbor that was for a few minutes bringing in um, some plates that we have left, they all went off together um, and they started kind of beeping and singing and shouting, screaming, and we couldn't quite figure out for like two minutes, uh, we thought, or for like, you know, 30 seconds maybe, we thought that maybe the Russians were actually marching uh, over the border uh, and we had to go to the basement. Uh, it was just actually a test of the German um, safety and alarm system. I was in a similar situation. I actually knew it was going to happen because I had listened to the news in the morning, but then I quickly forgot because I was having breakfast with my parents uh, who were still in Berlin at the time. Uh, we were having breakfast on the balcony. Uh, and uh, yes, all of a sudden, all of our phones went off, including their phones, although they're American, but they were connected to the local network. So their phones also got the this is just a test. A warning from the German catastrophe agency, basically, or population protection authorities. Um, and this they're very the Germans are very proud of because um, uh, they haven't been so good with their technology in terms of being able to reach uh, essentially everyone with a phone or everyone with some kind of device. Uh, this was a big problem uh, after the 2021 floods. Uh, and they really had to rework their system. And of course, Germany has data protection issues and privacy issues in terms of what the government can access. So it's been quite both a technological and bureaucratic hurdle uh, for them to put this system in place. So do you feel safer? I guess it's better than in 2021, uh, but I'm thinking about what happens if the cell phone networks go down. Uh, I think I also read a headline that in Berlin, there's actually no physical sirens. Um, so if the cell phone networks go down, if technology is the issue, then are there enough physical sirens to actually alert people of something going on? But so, I certainly feel safer. I certainly feel safer and more protected, fortunately, than uh, the absolute tragic events happening in both Morocco and Libya this week, which, uh, of course, has massive human implications, the cost of human life in those areas, and is uh, really just a stone throws away across the Mediterranean Martin, how are you looking at the earthquake in Morocco and the massive floods in Libya? Obviously, this was at the very top of headlines, of the headlines for pretty much the entire week. And what was quite brutal to see is that obviously, you know, the Morocco story um, being tragic uh, is compounded by the fact that probably the, the inaction or the incapacity of the state has costed a lot of lives. The story in Libya, uh, is 
absolutely egregious because as a matter of fact, I mean, the flood uh, was produced by uh, a breach of a dam and there was no warning to the inhabitants downwater. Uh, and this is just something that, you know, should constitute sort of an administrative crime. I mean, the question, the question I think that these two stories bring very close to each other the next the same week and in the same region is, you know, how prepared are these states that have been actually the recipients of development funds and that have been the recipients of like European aid? What has happened with that? Which in the end, they're still sort of in a situation which 20,000 people are actually killed because the most basic, the most basic, you know, mechanisms or things are not in place. At the same time, we're seeing thousands of migrants landing on Lampedusa, the, the Italian island that's quite close to the North African coast, uh, in a place that in best of circumstances can only really safely house a few hundred people. We know already that Italy, I mean, the European Union, of course, more broadly, but Italy in a really acute sense is not such a big fan of migrants. Uh, and, and and has their resources stretched thin uh, when it comes to thousands of people showing up on their shore. Martin, what are the what are the potential political implications here? This is bound to also produce sort of migration movements, uh, which will probably last for for a while, because we're talking, I mean, in the case of Morocco, we're talking about busts, you know, a bus piece of territory. The case of Italy is actually quite particular because they are actually sitting with a, you know, in very, very, very much in the in the far right, in the far right corner. And they have a essentially they have a an executive that has come to power on the promises of curving uh, migration. Meloni has actually been forced to hear from the opposition the fact that, you know, even campaigning on solving the migration problem, uh, reality has imposed itself and she has not been able to do it. So she has failed at her most basic sort of promise. Yeah, I mean, Matteo Salvini is basically calling this arrival of thousands of migrants all at once uh, an act of war, essentially, and and that uh, they, they, Italy will use all means at its disposal to defend itself from what he and I guess his government or at least his allies in government see as an act of war. I mean, that that's that's strong language. Well, he's he's not known for refinement, elegance, or or finesse. By exaggeration, he has built his political his political persona and his political project. Keep in mind that it's actually their government that has been one of the main proposers of putting inordinate amount of money, uh, you know, one billion euros is what has been promised to Tunisia in northern Africa, for the state to sort out migration when the state cannot even sort out alarms for floods and natural catastrophes. What's so stunning here is, you know, when we were putting this this episode together, the story was the storms in Greece that have wreaked havoc on Greece's food production uh, and an agricultural sector. And now that seems like small change in comparison to what's happened in Libya, because it was the same weather system. It was this, what they're calling a medicane, basically a hurricane that develops in the Mediterranean. It hit Greece and then it strengthened over the Mediterranean and then slammed into Libya. And then, as you said, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of political institutions, et cetera, you know, as, as always, we call these natural disasters, but I'm always skeptical. Uh, and I'm a bit uh, a bit hesitant to, to call them natural disasters because it seems to let uh, the human side and the human responsibility to these uh, catastrophes kind of get get away without taking responsibility as you've as you've laid out and now greece which itself is a is a major story and and the hit that is taken uh, is almost not even talked talked about just because of how much worse things look in libya 
I'm wondering, Martin, you talked about, you know, the the European political responsibility, given all the aid that's gone to a lot of these countries and what is what's happened with this aid. But a lot of European power has also been meted out. I'm thinking specifically of Libya with French and British military intervention uh, in the in the lead up to getting rid of Muammar Gaddafi about a decade ago, more than a decade ago by this point. Uh, from that vantage point, Martin, what do you see is is Europe's political responsibility? You know, this is something that we see every time that a Western force sort of lands to sort out uh, the dirty laundry laundry of a of a regime that they sort of happen not to like, and in very in many of these cases they used to like. There is no capacity building. There is no sort of amelioration of the state. I mean, you know, my particular position is that if you're actually going to be doing intervention, then you might as well just get into a business of colonization and stop pretending uh, that, you know, as a matter of fact, I mean, this is really just for hearts and minds. So I think that, you know, to to answer your, your question sort of very succinctly, I mean, a lot, a lot, not because it is just Europe's responsibility to sort out Libya's problem, but it is a chance that, you know, Europe had to help sort out Libya problems, Tunisia's problems, I mean, Algeria's problems, Morocco's problems, and they did not. The fact is that we are exactly where we started, perhaps much worse. The interconnectedness between between climate change and lack of action on climate change and how that weaponizes essentially uh, natural disasters, weather, climate events, which then pushes uh, pushes on the infrastructure and political limits of these developing countries that themselves have been under colonial or post-colonial or neo-colonial pressures of European powers and the Americans through military force and through financial the financial system, which then drives the migrants into Europe, which then weaponizes politics in Europe. This circular, you know, interconnectedness of just of of just a political shit show really is almost you can understand why people just don't want to even at political levels let alone you know average voters don't want to really look at the big picture because it's just the circuit the, the circular nature of it is, is 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 really crazy and with this story we will inaugurate what i hope will be uh the economic section of our uh, podcast which uh Hopefully will not put people to sleep. Well, this is the problem with the EU in general, right? Talking about EU issues. I mean, the European Union is foremost a, an economic uh, block, right? A finance is about money and trade and markets. So it's always a, a challenge to figure out how to not, how to keep people awake when talking about the EU, since so much of EU news goes through a sort of economic channels. But we do have some mo mo motions, movements going on with the EIB, the European Investment Bank, which is different than the European Central Bank, of course, the ECB, which, of course, raised interest rates to its highest ever in the history of the euro this week uh, in an effort to continue combating inflation. So we're not going to talk too much about the ECB. We want to talk about the EIB. And first of all, Martin, what the hell is the EIB? Well, I mean, if you actually do believe that Europe is first and foremost, an economic arrangement of parts. Um, actually, you would think that the EIB is kind of at its core because it's the one institution uh, that is, you know, in charge of, I mean, in the banking sector of Europe, it's uh, one institution that is in charge essentially of just giving money away. Uh, it's actually an investment bank. They put money into development. 
they actually finance various initiatives. Uh, since 1958, I believe, which is the year in which they sort of started operating, uh, the bank has actually dispersed something like dispensed something like a trillion euros uh, in in money in euro money, which of course in '58 there was none. The EIB is essentially uh, an institution that is there to dispense uh, money. A lot of the focus is actually in line very often with the European Commission. Uh, so the European Commission tends to set policy goals and then the EIB goes out and sort of puts money on those things. So obviously climate change and climate, you know, an environmental policy that has been a very big issue for uh, the von der Leyen Commission is also kind of at the top of the list of the things that the EIB has been putting cash into uh, over the over the von der Leyen uh, tenure. Which brings us to what's going on, you know, in this time period right now in this week with the EIB's head or new head up for up for the picking. So, Martin, walk us through, you know, who, you know, what does this mean? Who's up for the job and what is that and, and what its potential impact can be? So, I mean, it's uh, quite clear that there is going to be sort of a pony race of political figures. And that's exactly what we have. I mean, so there is no technical discussion, right? I mean, it's not that we're looking at technicians that are completely unknown. Uh, a lot of the people that would actually be named uh, for the position are people that those of us who are looking at politics in different European countries would probably recognize. I mean, first and foremost, of course, uh, Margaret Vestager, who is the, the Danish until recently commissioner of all sorts of things, uh, including green issues at some point, then competition under the you know last part of Juncker and, and, and so on and so forth. She just stepped down and she's actually being considered uh, for the position. So she's a thoroughly inside, thorough insider, and she's somebody that actually has become very well known for you know picking up uh, fights with, uh, as you might remember, with Google and Apple, where she actually slams many of these companies with major, major, major fines of the likes that they had not seen before. Uh, the second person is actually another Brussels insider, less known. <clears throat> Uh, her name is Nadia, Nadia Calvino. She is somebody that is sort of, you know, a close and important part of the uh, Spanish government. Uh, and as a matter of fact, she has been involved in investment issues uh, around uh, digitalization and things of the kind. Uh, you know, it's somebody that um, was sort of, I mean, she actually is would be sort of a well-known name for any Spaniard. And once again, we have somebody that, although like Vestaga, they have some amount of sort of technical knowledge, obviously, uh, they are also essentially political. They would be sort of political appointments. The one person I didn't mention that I think it's really worth mentioning is Daniele Franco, who is an Italian economist. And Daniele Franco was a uh, a minister. He was generally known as a, as a technocrat who was not particularly political uh, and managed to keep somehow up the fray. Then he became minister for Mario Draghi. So the fact that he's being mentioned and the fact that, you know, the Italian government is looking at figures around Draghi, because obviously he would have to have, you know, uh, the support of the Meloni government. Uh, the fact that somebody around Draghi 
it's being pushed forth shows once again that you know as many people are actually pointing out in relation to meloni that we have shifting tectonic plates politically that what we have is actually a meloni government that is supporting a draghi sort of a draggy person into a very high position uh, of political financial decision making. And that could have some big impact on, as you said, you know, the kinds of digitalization uh, and clean energy, you know, climate related policies that the European Commission, either this one or the next one, uh, might want to enact, which I think is a great uh, sort of segue into our main story of the week, which is, of course, the main story anyone who follows European politics is looking at which was Ursula von der Leyen's uh, State of the Union address, her annual address to the European Parliament uh, that happened this week, potentially her last one, although maybe not. I mean, it's a very strange thing, the the, the State of the Union address. It's such a, an American import of an idea. It's, it's a bit stilted. It's a bit awkward. It's not like, I don't think, I'm, I don't get the sense that normal people in the European Union really watch it. Uh, it's really made for ins to to take another American expression inside the Beltway or inside Brussels, uh, kind of yeah. kind of audience. What do you make of this State of the Union address? This is not the U.S. So you know the sort of the splintering of political interest and political concerns uh, across all these countries uh, means that you know the person that von der Leyen or like a commission president addressing, you know, it's addressing does not really exist. So what did you think about it? It was long, 63 minutes. I think I read it was her second longest address, uh, State of the Union address, which, which seems unnecessary, as we said, just given who its audience is, what the point of it is, who's listening. And to me, what was interesting is what did not get attention. Climate did not get a lot of mention. Migration did not get a huge mention. Energy did not get a huge mention. I mean, these are major issues that are in the on the forefront of challenges to the European Union and indeed the whole world. And they, for von der Leyen, didn't really talk about them. What did get the big mention said, was technology, technology, AI, big tech in the U.S. Uh, and and kind of making sure that the EU doesn't lose out uh, on what is by most people being seen as you know the next big shock to the global economic system, the very way that we, to use a word that von der Leyen used a lot, work, the way we work, the way we make money, the way we have our livelihoods. One of the big problems that von der Leyen has is that a lot of conservatives, especially conservatives that are actually flirting with the idea of far right operators like Meloni uh, or, you know, Le Pen, should she come to power, are people that are pretty discontent with the type of Merkelian politics that they see von der Leyen's commission as having had. So I think that, you know, leaving things like the, the European the European Climate Initiative uh, out of the speech, it, it's just remarkable because it's been a centerpiece of her agenda, stated centerpiece and priority. I think it's, it's almost a, 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 such an obvious question to even ask why that is and the political backdrop here, going that seeing that we are going into European elections in the springtime. This is the end of her of her term as European Commission president. There's a lot of speculation about whether she'll run again, whether she'll have the support. 
And of course, she's throwing a bone to her conservative uh, allies who she'll need the votes from if she wants to be stay on as European Commission president. And of course, the EPP, the European People's Party, uh, which is this you know con- collection of conservative parties in the European uh, Parliament, they hate the Green Deal. They see it as you know, basically anti-industrial or anti-industry, uh, bad for the economy, bad for, for big businesses. And of course, they'll make the populist argument bad for workers. And, and of course, Ursula von der Leyen herself is a conservative. She's from the German Christian Democrats, which are part of the EPP alliance. Uh, she's from, you mentioned Merkelian politics, no surprise. She was she served in Merkel's, uh, various, Merkel, various functions in Merkel's government, uh, most notably uh, as one of the many uh, kind of embarrassing defense ministers of Germany before she escaped to Brussels, as many European officials uh, who are looking to get out of national embarrassments do. So it's a dumb question, or I should say it's an obvious question, Martin, but what role is the the political landscape, the European elections that are coming up, what role is that playing in this speech and in von der Leyen's thinking? Uh, it's almost impossible not to read every single one of these messages, uh, particularly as we're seeing national elections shifting the political, the political winds in different countries as strong messages being sent to like allies and opponents uh, in that context as the EPP bloc sort of starts to face the music towards next year, but also sort of at a national level, uh, conservatives are probably trying to pull the reins and see if they can actually redirect this kind of, you know, uh, soft conservative, soft conservative machine, sort of bring it back farther to the right. The far right will make absolutely sure to show the cost of the Green Deal sort of across the board. So I think we've seen that the that the State of the Union addresses foremost about interest and political jockeying uh, with very much an eye, if not both eyes, on European elections to come and the future of Ursula von der Leyen's personal political uh, prospects. I think we saw one thing we didn't really touch on is this so-called or supposed anti-subsidy investigation against Chinese electric vehicles. That's kind of a favor, uh, especially to the French. I think we're going to hold off on a future episode about that because we don't know what that's going to look like. But that's what was announced, this sort of anti-subsidy investigation. But it does speak to this the regulatory power of the European Union and the European Union as a global regulatory power. What it lacks in military might, it has in in, in, in setting rules and regulations that the rest of the world has to follow. And I think that was so keenly distilled in the launch of the new iPhone this week which will of course have the USB-C standard that the European Union uh, has finally, after a lot of wrangling over years, has finally said this will be the standard for all devices. Uh, Martin, did you did, did, did you take note at, at that at all, that that the most valuable company and an American company is, is bending to the will of, of European regulations? It sends a very clear message that the European Union will actually bit even the most sort of powerful of financial muscles uh, in line uh, and, you know, make what you want of it. Um, it's still basically uh, Apple taking design decisions and functionality decisions from the European Union. Uh, and I don't really foresee that in any way, shape or form, 
you know, regulators will become less popular by doing this. I mean, certainly with American legislators who will go out and try to bat for, you know, the American company uh, that is now in the crosshairs. But I think that this will be very, very good uh, and will make a lot of consumers very, very happy. All of these companies, including things like, you know, uh, uh, Twitter or whatever it's called now, Facebook, et cetera, into interoperability and interoperability across the board would be a way actually to curb sort of the monopolic use of technology that many of these American companies have. So what other story are you looking at for this coming week? Well, the other big story, of course, was the ARM IPO uh, that happened this week, the much anticipated biggest IPO in years. There's been sort of a, 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 an unofficial freeze on IPOs. There's been so much economic instability over the last couple of years, especially with the pandemic, that a lot of companies that have been wanting to go public on the stock exchange have been kept private. Um, this was the big one. Uh, ARM is a British chips manufacturer that is hugely influential uh, in chip designs that go into, speaking of phones, that go into all kinds of devices. And of course, uh, advanced microchips are the basis of our world. And of course, with all this talk of AI, uh, AI needs to run off of very powerful chips and ever more powerful chips. Uh, and ARM plays a huge role in that. That's at least the hope of those working at ARM, the executives at ARM, and of course, it's shareholders that would like to make a lot of money off of ARM uh, finally going public. For me, we could talk is not so much the financial question, but it's how interesting it is that this British company uh, uh, is not listing on the London Stock Exchange. It's listing on the NASDAQ in New York. And you see the same thing with Birkenstock coming up. The, the famous German sandal company is going to be going public, not in Germany, not in Frankfurt, but on the New York Stock Exchange. And of course, the reason for that is obvious because you can make a lot more money in the United States than you can in certainly European markets, like the German one, and even the London Stock Exchange uh, is nothing in comparison to what you can do uh, in the US. And between this USB story and the ARM IPO, what I see here is the financial power of the United States and the regulatory power of the European Union that really has the opportunity to dominate the world. I mean, they, these two ends of this extreme, these two ends of policymaking and tools of policymaking in the West, of course, do dominate much of the world. But in all these questions about, you know, the end of Western power, the end of American hegemony, the rise of China, um, all these fears that you hear from Western policymakers, this skittishness, a lot of that could be solved if American policymakers and European policymakers got together and joined forces and did what they do best, which is the U.S. Uh, dominates the global financial system and the European Union dominates the regulatory system. And if you can put those two those two sources of power together, you're basically, you know, China, Russia, India, um, you know, rising powers in the global south do not stand a chance at breaking away from Western domination. I'm not making a moral judgment on that. I'm talking from a political and a policy perspective. Certainly the West and the United States wants to maintain its hegemony. But I think the question or the challenge confronting US and European policymakers is, is your enemy's enemy your friend? And as much as there's competition across the Atlantic, I believe uh, they might be more worried about a rising China. But those are, those are, those are big picture uh, developments that I think we'll be touching on uh, forever really and in many in many more euroscopic episodes to come i hope 
that's it for this week's Euroscopic with William Glucroft and Martin Gack. Written by us, produced by us, and edited by me. Euroscopic has no institutional backing or funding of any kind, so if you like what you hear, consider pledging your support. You can do that at euroscopic.substack.com. You can also like, subscribe, and share this and other episodes. We're available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and just about wherever your ears go for podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you again next week.